0: There is dignity in this work. Um, These are, in and of themselves, stories that are worth telling. Mm -hmm. And they're not visible. Mm -hmm. 99% of the policy conversation in the broader aid sector, if we call it that, is talking heads. It's, It's senior officials. It's academics in elite institutions in the global north. To to generalize a bit harshly, by and large, appointments are made on the basis of domestic political expediency, expertise is judged by institutions in the global north that have no comparative advantage in talking Mm -hmm. about these issues. So I do think that the everyday experience of people who work at the point of delivery is really not present Mm -hmm. in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that's harmful in a structural way in terms of making good decisions. I also think it's, uh, it's not respectful of the the dignity and the merit of the work in itself.
1: Hello, my name is Sam and welcome to episode number 40, the finale, the wrap-up of the One Step Forward podcast. This episode's a little bit different in two respects. Firstly, you're hearing my voice um, as the introduction, which means that Ian is on the other side of the microphone. And I'm talking to Ian as the host of this podcast. How does this project connect to his own lived experience? And why did it feel like the right thing to do at this point in time for him? Hmm. And secondly, to take a step back and explore the stories of this podcast. Why are they worth capturing? What does it tell us about who we are in public service? And how does this differ from the picture that generally gets painted? And what has all of this got to do, these small pockets of lived experience with the big picture challenges in international cooperation? From anti-racism to structural gaps and blind spots,
0: and I wanted to, to bring Sam in as my interlocutor on this uh, for two reasons. First, her own work is on um, humanity in health and social care and how that survives you know, despite bureaucracy, despite often crushing work pressure. And that was a big part of the inspiration for this this series of interviews, this line of, of work. The second is... Um, as someone who is not of this space, who's not in development, humanitarianism, conflict management, but is a, a close observer, shares some of the lived experience, um, what are the reflections, what are the insights, the the takeaways that someone from that perspective gets from this, this series of, of 40
1: interviews with sort of fairly hardcore professionals? So... To end, it mm. was a real pleasure to interview Ian on this one, and um, I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having Ian squirm in the hot seat. <laughs> it's all a bit introspective for my tastes, but uh, <laughs> here we go. Uh, enjoy, Ian. Welcome to your own podcast. Well, thank you. <laughs> a question to get us started, which I know that you've asked many listeners, where is your accent from?
0: My accent is increasingly clear these days after a year and a bit of no travelling thanks to the pandemic. It is originally Australian, specifically uh, from the western suburbs of Sydney, which is quite a distinct accent for anyone who's lived in the region. It's gone very weird with time, due to several years in South Asia, fair amount of time in Central Africa, including working predominantly in French, and now living in the UK. Um, it varies from broad Australian in the right circumstances to a sort of weird international polyglot, Franklish thing in certain circumstances.
1: And where is home for you now?
0: Home is London. Uh, I have misgivings about the direction of the UK, so that won't be the case forever, I suspect, but it's it's London for now.
1: And the next question you typically ask your guests is one that we've really struggled with, haven't we? Because people don't understand what it is that you do and therefore you're in this unknown mysterious something with international travel for long periods of time bucket therefore you are a spy and if you try and say to people he's not a spy well of course a spy would say that he's not a spy so how do you describe at a wedding at a function what it is that you do?
0: I generally just say that I'm a management consultant which is not the profession with the best reputation admittedly but I, in a sentence i would i would say that i organize major change initiatives and organizational transitions so a, a big organization has an emerging challenge how do you marshal the evidence that you need build the partnerships and capacities that you need to to take those critical first few steps forward on something where the you know the traditional way of doing things is not going not gonna to cut it. And the conversation often ends there, to be honest. But if people are interested, what complicates that is that I do that work, I play that role for organizations that work in extremely fragile places where communities are exceptionally marginalized. Um, so that, in practice, means goals like mitigating very violent conflict, uh, establishing rudimentary social services after periods where they've collapsed entirely, facilitating people to return to their homes, uh, etc, etc. And that becomes very situational, so I will usually say for people who aren't specialists, well I do that in places like Democratic Republic of the Congo, Central African Republic, Uh, Afghanistan, Yemen have not actually worked in Afghanistan or Yemen but I think that's a reference point that people get, it helps them contextualise the kind of space in which
1: I'm working as a role Um, Thinking back to the teenager in your Western Sydney bedroom who is thinking about his career what was it? Were there a series of moments or what made you think actually I'm not sure I'm going to start my career here in australia well i did start it there
0: Mm -hmm. Um, i worked for a number of years in project management uh, in the broader legal profession let's say and worked in exceedingly crappy jobs prior to that which which we'll not get into but there wasn't a clear event or person or entry point I think the received message at that age was you have to put yourself in a position to earn a living. So when I was coming out of high school and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go do a law degree and a finance degree, which are joined together in, in the Australian system because my understanding is that will sort of equip me in a broad sense to, to make my way in life. And that was the dominant, really the only um, rationale that I was even aware of in in choosing a vacation or or a career. I hadn't been exposed to uh, the idea that one could have the you know, the privilege in a sense of not working only for a living of working for some other cause. And that, I think that continued for a few years afterwards. So I, I Ultimately, I came to the idea of uh, working on these sorts of issues, kind of indirectly. Um, I was a big reader, mm-hmm. as a, well, certainly as a child, also as a teen, also as a young adult, and, and still to some extent. Uh, perhaps because I was not socially super competent, I devoured books at a pretty prodigious rate of, of all genres, pretty indiscriminately. And somehow that was all quite real in my head, um, such that I could be reading about, you know, colonization of, of Latin America, or, you know, early uh, Asian civilizations, and, and in some sense that was as real as the social interactions I was having day to day, which were which were limited. The turning point, I think, was pretty much by random reading a few books about the Rwandan genocide uh, which I literally just picked off the shelf at uh, the local bookstore, went back, read them, said this is interesting, went back, got some more, read everything I could on the topic. In fact and my university I had a pretty terrible library for that sort of thing so you know the selection was limited and I, I became conscious later on that of course this was all written by white guys, it was the landmark texts at that time, was Gerard Prunier and, and Philip Gorovich and so on. And there was something that was very, uh, there was tremendously real about those facts to me. They seemed like events that were so huge and so compelling that I didn't really understand how you couldn't sort of stop in your tracks and think about them. What was weird to me was that other people did not uh, react to them in that way and there wasn't a way immediately to translate that into anything I was doing in a day-to-day level. The university I was at at this point was a very good university but very technically focused so there were no mentor figures or coursework or direct exposure. It was it was really a conversation with historical events that I, I just found impossible to ignore. In a way that was quite isolating because it's very difficult to have those conversations. It remains very difficult to have those conversations. It wasn't something that was on the, the radar of most people and if it was they just didn't seem to think it was you know, as important or, or as, as foundational a thing. Um, and in, in retrospect, you know, this is, this is just neurodiversity, right? Like some people relate to the world in one way, others relate to it in a different way.
1: Thinking back to that time, do you remember specifically what it was? Was it numbers, the scale of it, the stories, the human experience? What imprinted on you so profoundly?
0: Uh, it was it was the numbers to begin with. In subsequent years, there's been a lot of quite good narrative work done on the, you know, the genocide within Rwanda itself, and then the chain of events after that in, in DR Congo, which was sort of even larger in terms of absolute numbers. But initially, for me, it was the numbers because you you look at these figures, uh, and they're, <laughs> they're disputed, of course, but. You know, somewhere in the vicinity of a million plus or minus deaths by violence in the space of a few months is a number I couldn't really wrap my head around at the time. It seemed like if the number was really that high, why wasn't everyone freaking the hell out about it? Like, why was this um, not something that was in the popular consciousness at all, really? And bear in mind, this is sort of 2000, 2001, so five, six years later, not 25, 26 years later. So for me yeah for me that was really the entry point which which sounds kind of juvenile in a way but it was the it was the trigger in the sense that it is just orders of magnitude different to issues you'll bump into in a rich country context where there are problems but of course but not of anything like the same magnitude you know I was doing a little bit of work in the the clinic for um, predominantly survivors of domestic abuse and, and, and unpleasant divorces, and so on. And I just couldn't bridge that gap in my mind between, you know, a few people or a dozen people in seri- very serious circumstances versus these figures of, of a million. Or in, in DRC, again, figures are disputed, but three, four, five million dead just seemed it demanded an explanation. <laughs>
1: What, how did you act on that? What What were your next steps? So, not, it seemed logical
0: and straightforward to me at the time, but having told this story to people over the years, they tend to find it a bit weird. Perhaps it's characteristically weird. There wasn't, as I say, an obvious entry point. The idea of studying a year abroad or a gap year, even more so, would completely sort of alien and almost incomprehensible. Um, this was not um, something that people I know did. It was not something that I could afford to do. It was not something that people I knew could afford to do. There were no graduate recruitment schemes or any obvious channels like that. For whatever reason, the, the very few options that were available, I was not an attractive um, candidate. So I thought I'm going to approach this empirically, I will do a six-month trial um, at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, chasing down that particular thread, which was in Tanzania, and I'll do another six months in a more of a community development type organization, and the, the rationale was I am very compelled by the scale of the issues, mm-hmm. um, I, would, I want to be involved with this in some way, but I guess my logical brain also thought, hold on, I'm not sure that a retroactive sort of approach with, with international criminal law as the, the mechanism is really a high impact intervention here. So I'm going to try something that aims at structural change alongside that because I suspect that I like that better, better, even though at this stage I was um, trained as a lawyer and was you know, shortly afterwards admitted as a lawyer, I just had a suspicion that lawyers aren't that relevant in the, in the scheme of things. So I saved up for years, um, I had been saving for years, I continued to save for years. I was working all through university in, in relatively high pressure jobs, then I continued for another year to squirrel away the resources to execute that plan because, of course, these were unpaid roles slotting into wherever people would have me. Um, So an internship at Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and I was planning uh, a similar thing um, at a national development NGO, so I had my eye on, um, very famous now, I think the world's biggest NGO in Bangladesh called BRAC. Um, I had been in email contact with a few others. So that was that was the plan. Um, and it's more or less what I did. I did work at the Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I ended up uh, embedding into a Australian government skilled volunteer scheme instead of a national NGO. And they sent me to Sri Lanka um, working with... UNICEF actually, which is a long way from a national NGO but it was the kind of work I was interested in, so that was my little empirical test, what is the right place for me in, in, in all of this
1: And what assertions did you reach from these tests?
0: Uh, that could fill a <laughs> that could fill um, a, uh, a 40 episode podcast series I think a number of number of conclusions. So, as predicted, I did not gel with the uh, criminal law angle on things. It was abundantly clear that the work that the ICTR, as it's known, was doing was quite far removed from what was actually politically happening in Rwanda. very politicized, very contentious, um, the way in which it selected cases, its relationship with the Rwandan government, its outreach to the Rwandan population, These, these are all hugely problematic. What I did like about that was that it moved me from master narrative spun by some white guy, academic or journalist, to the direct speech and lived experience of uh, the people concerned. And in addition, people who were in sort of a service delivery or front line in quotes kind of role who were directly interfacing with events. Uh, so my... My job there essentially was going through witness statements, passing them, interleaving them with all of the other witness statements, for which there would be literally hundreds for these cases, they're very complex cases, tried over several years, and trying to weave a narrative out of that mm-hmm. that was true but also responsive to um, the experiences of those who were directly involved. Which uh, is a tricky balance to strike in the law, obviously it is, it is biased in a sense towards the former, but I did find it enormously compelling to be writing in some sense the, you know, if not the first draft of history, um, the good second draft. Um, so these these are enormously detailed uh, accounts of exactly what happened, where, with whom, why, when. Um, drawing, to, drawing little maps of uh, individual towns or neighbourhoods of how people moved and timelines for specific days. I found that reconstruction enormously compelling and, and I think it is historically important that will survive you know, for, for centuries indefinitely, uh, and it's very important that it happened. Uh, it was a bit of a madhouse of insane bureaucracy. Didn't love that aspect. Mm-hmm. Then the second half of the experiment So I ended up going to Sri Lanka in a very interesting period where the very long running civil war had entered one of the periods in which it quieted down for a few years. Um, And then the tsunami happened, uh, which was a unparalleled disaster in terms of numbers again. Uh, And the combined effect was that there was a pause and it really felt like there was scope to do something. So I did think quite hard about this, like, is this a space where it seems like there's the possibility to accomplish something, and it felt like there was. Um, That turned out to be wrong. Uh, I was there for a couple of years, based in little towns in the north of Sri Lanka, working on uh, initiatives to manage uh, not the primary political grievances in that conflict, but rather all the other stuff that fuels that and creates flashpoints. So uh, looking at how social services were delivered, whether that was equitable and inclusive for areas that had been marginalized, managing returns of people who had been displaced so that that didn't aggravate conflict as a result of changes in ownership of land and pressure on natural resources and so on and so forth. And, you know, this, this work still happens in a a lot of countries today sometimes it can play a useful role Um, in that context it did not play a useful role it was pretty much a steady downward spiral from the day I arrived which then culminated in in some of the worst violence of the last uh, you know really since the Bosnian and and Rwandan episodes of the mid-90s some of the worst violence anywhere in the world. Hundreds of thousands of, of civilians uh, killed, like pretty foreseeably and, and deliberately, massive internment camps. So by the by the time I left, uh, there had been a government-sponsored massacre, of enormous scale, and a roundup of hundreds of thousands of civilians who were stuck in internment camps, and international agencies such as mine were obligingly providing services to the internment camps. Mm-hmm. So. Suffice it to say that was a pretty uh, harsh wake-up call in terms of that early ambition to work on the structural drivers Mm -hmm. of marginalization.
1: And I know there's more... You went to different countries and worked on different issues. If I fast-forward to when I first met you, many, many moons ago now, one of the things you were grappling with at the time, I remember, and um, used to draw this, is getting off of the dance floor mm-hmm. and into the balcony view. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through what made what was this analogy and what made you arrive at this point of having to take a step back and getting off of the dance floor?
0: Yeah, so I lifted that, I'd semi-forgotten about that. So I lifted that metaphor from some leadership guru. I don't actually remember who. <laughs> I liked it at the time. I guess it. I'd semi-forgotten it, but I guess I still like it in that it does capture the idea that there are clear patterns and internal logics to... A dance which, you know, when you're in it, is mostly about muscle memory and following the mood of the room and, and a beat and so on. It's very much instinctual and based on habit. But if you get up and look at it from another perspective, obviously you can see geometrically what is going on and rhythmically as well. There is a clear underlying logic to it. So I did, I did always like that metaphor and one of the dorkier things I've done was uh, invest some time in understanding dance notation, the actual uh, <laughs> written system one uses to describe this. If and we're so, not
1: talking like discotheque or rave music, we're like it was 18th century dance. Well, this step, is wasn't. this
0: is where the notation comes obviously it comes from the more sort of formal styles. <laughs> so yes, this is a bit of an esoteric thing to, it was a high trust environment to share that. <laughs> To share very that, very, that very niche uh, interest at that time. But the I mean coming back to why that was compelling, I think the lived experience of working in that sort of environment, and I've done it multiple times. Um, Sri Lanka was the first, and in, so, in some ways, the a very formative one. I've done it multiple times, and the experience is really working extremely hard ridiculously hard at times um to the point of of damaging your own physical and and mental health uh but at the same time watching things get progressively worse Mm -hmm. and worse and worse so the cognitive dissonance of doing work that you know was actually was technically very good I mean I obviously am many years more experienced now I would do it differently but looking I, I have looked back at it. like technically it was very good and I was I was not someone who was dropped in there with no skills I was, I was very much capable of, of project management at the level of which I was doing it but the cognitive dissonance of of working so hard on the technical aspects of something that having it be Profoundly irrelevant to people's lives and the the course of events. Uh, it's. I think it's traumatizing, I and mean, this is this is the paradox of public service in a way. Um, you read these sort of trite LinkedIn quotes that if you believe in what you're doing, uh, it'll be like you're not working at all. No, it's it's the opposite. You are committed to producing change in the world but have so little individual agency to do so that if you can't find a way of bridging that gap and making sense of that experience, you'll go insane. And, and one, one option is to check out and just go through the motions and, and be a, you know, the famous uh, frozen middle of a bureaucracy and, and phone it in. But the other is you, you think very hard and reflexively about it and what your share of the task actually is and I was doing a lot of that around the time we met um, and I have been doing a lot of it ever since to be honest.
1: And we'll come on to more about the podcast as the conversation goes but just to bring that in I think listening through the different episodes it was such a clear theme for me and also around our Kitchen table when we share meals and experiences with people is the impact on mental health, and just listening through people saying, "Is it? Am I doing enough? Is it enough? How can I do more?"
0: Mm.
1: And um, and I'm so struck that many people in this sector who are contributing to trying to help to trying to solve things mm. lose part of their identity of origin. Mm -hmm. How does that play out for you and others in your peer groups? What's what's the personal cost and how do you justify that?
0: I think anyone who thinks carefully about this um, would frankly hesitate to answer that because the, the obvious response which you'll get a lot of the time is well. That's kind of irrelevant when you're dealing with situations where people lose everything, yeah. you know, um, have to literally leave every single thing they own behind. Often, several dead relatives, often suffering from serious trauma of various kinds, and then just live in you know in limbo for years at a time. So, I think part of the problem here is that people don't ask that question because it seems selfish or ridiculous and it comes Mm -hmm. back to where I started right when you're confronted by these um, tragedies of immense scope, human caused tragedies most of the time of of immense scope, it somehow seems inappropriate to even ask that question Mm -hmm. That was definitely my mentality for Mm -hmm. some years And I think you're incentivized in many ways not to ask that question because you might not like the answer and it comes back to that sort of paradox that I identified earlier right if you ask yourself was it worth it there is a good chance in this line of work that you're not going to be able to point to impact in in air quotes uh, success stories again definitely in air quotes Mm -hmm where you can say, well, you know, I, my health is, is crap and um, <laughs> my net worth is pretty negligible, but at least I accomplished X and Y and Z. Um, I think the norm is throwing a lot of effort into work that is, is technically good, but not having that kind of big picture success story that I was so invested in, in having. So I... Do think that people struggle with this, and it, it's becoming ever more problematic because there are very real structural problems around the very dominant position of the global north and how policy making and decision making happens. So it becomes even more mm-hmm. problematic to have a, a positive identity and and, and feeling of self worth in a context that is is being actively challenged, you know, in many ways rightly as as quite racist and, and, and neo-colonial. So there's not a lot of resources one can draw on there, even at a practical level. The and I've said this, I mean, on this podcast and elsewhere, the level of support at a practical level for people's physical and basic physical and mental well being, let alone sort of thriving in in a fuller sense right in terms of their their personal lives and their career is monumentally terrible it is unbelievable how bad it is and there are many many stories that can be can be told about this of of course I'll just share one anecdote to to make the point which is that I've been in a number of acute incidents in my working life Uh, one of the first was a a truck bomb in Sri Lanka and uh, Uh, The Tamil Tigers, the insurgent group there, was very skilled at this, and um, I was in town one time, and a truck bomb wiped out an entire company uh, of of infantry, like, killed, I think, 80 or 90 people, critically wounded another 100, I was a few hundred metres away, didn't know what the, I was, like, 25, didn't know what the hell to do, like, literally a few hundred metres away, like you know, debris of various kinds flying through the air. Um, very unclear what the situation was. It wasn't even debriefed mm-hmm. afterwards. It wasn't even a conversation about it. First first role of that kind, massively serious incident, like even from the point of view of security management, why was I there? Was protocol followed in the aftermath? No, none nothing like that. And there have been a number of incidents like that, and I know other people who have gone through much worse and not even had the courtesy of a phone call, let alone any sort of uh, structured intervention. And beyond critical incidents, you know, you spend decades in this this sector. Um, Most cases, moving from country to country, incredibly difficult to start a family or, or build a home in any real sense. And for the most part, that's on you. Um, like a foreign service is quite different, there are niches that are different but for the most part that's on you, like it's left on you to work that out and it does seem like all of the problems or the structural problems of organizing this way are just kind of dumped on the individuals. This is something I've explored in the the podcast with a lot of people is how do they personally survive and ideally thrive in this kind of very structurally dysfunctional situation and I think... I think we have to be more prepared to have that conversation without feeling guilty that, um, you yeah, know, well, without feeling guilty, full stop. Well, yeah, you full know, stop. <laughs> without feeling that this somehow takes away from attention to uh, conflicts or displacement crises or, or cholera outbreaks or whatever it is. Like those two things can happen at the same, the same time. That's not... <laughs> That's not unreasonable. You're not being unduly selfish or crazy and asking that. Uh, but I, I don't know that that's the case at the moment.
1: And I think bringing a personal aspect to it, it's a huge area of growth that I've seen you go through in the seven, eight years that we've known each other. Um, and I remember when you'd come back from being in country, it you would always have a landing period where you're physically in London Mm. but your mind is where you came from your heart is still where you came from Mm. and it's a period of transition and I remember feeling residual guilt like we'd walk down the road to get a coffee and I could just see this turmoil in you of thinking like who am I to be drinking a takeaway coffee in this posh neighborhood that we're walking down what's been your journey to find peace in that
0: I would say it's a continuing journey it's <laughs> the short answer there's no terribly easy answer on that you know one of my selfish interests in doing these interviews is understanding how other people um, grapple with that because I think we do need you know in this broader sector which I have called international cooperation um, there isn't really a common terminology that everyone would accept but when you're in this kind of work you uh, this is something you have to actively think about. And I think that there have to be collective answers. You cannot put the burden of answering that on a single person. You particularly cannot put the burden of answering that on a 20-something person. Uh, You know, I wasn't technically a graduate. I've been working for a number of years, but there was just no preparation for these massive ethical dilemmas and critical incident stress and all the rest of it um, there was technical preparation but in terms of the uh, uh, an ethical and values framework to navigate that there was nothing so one of the things that i have been trying in my modest my my very little modest way to encourage is is more of an honest conversation around that so that people have the tools mm-hmm. to be able to find answers to that question that work for them. Um, So a couple of the things that have struck me and that I found useful, and from people who are massively more experienced in many ways. I mean, one is that it's incredibly egocentric to have that ambition or expectation of shaping global events In the first place. That is a profoundly unfair expectation to put on yourself. It may even be a somewhat immoral perspective in that it's you know a version of a savior complex. And there are alternatives to that. There's a a thread in early feminist scholarship of, of public policy and legal theory about the ethic of care. This is uh, author uh, Carol Gilligan, and I think some of her work has been a little bit discredited, but uh, the, the basic point holds is that that orientation of individual agency, change in a situation, impact as the, the measure of value and an ethical sort of reference point is, in fact, a very male, Western, uh, some would say capitalist, orientation. An alternative ethics, an ethic of care, is about um, attentiveness, it's about responsibility, it's about responsiveness to people who are in extremely hard times. And, you know, in some of the, the individual episodes we've had, I remember the, the successes that people cited mostly related to that. Um, Rabi Omar, lovely guy in um, Tripoli in, in northern mm-hmm. Lebanon. You know his relationship was with the place. He, he passed through all these different organizations, and was just invested in helping his city, if not thrive, at least you know make its way as best it could. Mm-hmm. And what an individual organization did or did not do in in a, in a annual plan and its in its strategic plan was kind of secondary to that. Is his relationship with the place endured mm-hmm, mm-hmm. throughout. Um, others have talked about their relationships with colleagues, with staff, with people that the, just relationships that have formed uh, in general in the societies in which they're working. And it was much more common to hear that as a success story, to be honest, than, a, than it was for people to say yes for this one time, we really nailed it, and the literacy rate <laughs> increased by forty percent. I mean, those those stories do exist, but particularly when you're talking about extremely marginalized populations, mm-hmm. um, I think there is an alternative ethical framework than mm-hmm. impact than than making a huge change. And to throw another sort of framework out there, because you know, this is something people have actively thought about. We in the in the aid sector, in particular, we tend to reinvent things, but this is not a new. This is not a new dilemma. like there are professions and contexts that have struggled with this for hundreds or even thousands of years. So another framework that struck me was a guy who worked with uh, victims of torture, the name of Mario. And we had a long conversation about this, but one of the things he mentioned was that his starting point was, was liberation theology. and this is the sort of Lat- very Latin American branch of Catholicism which, asserts that involvement in political and social life is a moral duty, um, that part of being a good Catholic is not doing good works per se, but right action in, in not just your individual life, but in, in political and social life. And there are a number of very uh, articulate um, figures that have articul- that have uh, explained this in, in, in much more compelling terms than I can, but I found that kind of reassuring in a way. Obviously, I'm not Catholic, but... It is about in some sense right action and solidarity and the right kinds of positively affirming relationships Mm -hmm. and less about shaping events in some dramatic way. And then I'm going on this question a bit because I I think a lot of people, certainly myself uh, grapple with this. A third perspective, which in a way was the most interesting, I included a couple of sort of controlled people mm-hmm. who don't work in those contexts. The two I'm thinking of are based in the UK. And they couldn't even... And had both like made important contributions in their own way. They couldn't really understand the question. They, I think, I, I think they're a bit nonplussed as to what I was even trying to get at. Because their response was, well, I did the work. You know, as a journalist, as a policy analyst, I did the work. It was good work. We said something that was true and that was interesting, and then we moved on. What happened next is not my responsibility, and I was almost—I was almost at a loss as to how to follow up because I was sitting there thinking, "But, but doesn't it worry you that <laughs> nothing happened? That you know, you documented a, the, arguably the most comprehensive evidence of a, of a stolen election that." You know, I've seen in my lifetime, and then nothing happened. Like the, the guy who stole the election was just um, confirmed and that was that. Mm-hmm. I and mean, he it was it was like we we're speaking completely different languages. Like why would I feel bad about that? That's not my responsibility. We did the job that we were there to do, we did it well, that's the end of it. And I don't think I'm ever gonna feel that way, but it's be healthy to a
1: little bit feel that way. <laughs> You, I think, could afford to move along from one end of the spectrum just a few steps. <laughs> well, I think I, I think I have. Um, but
0: it's a, it's a continuing, uh, it's a continuing journey.
1: Two themes on that point, um, and you brought up Mario's um, episode and interview. A big thing I took from that was the restoration of hope, mm-hmm. um, and hope for the people in the communities that you are working with and i think also hope for the individuals who are there and in, in, in work that this has some kind of meaning mm. um, and the second thing that I, I really resonated strongly is i would listen it wasn't the story of the individual mm. on their journey battling this and battling that and coming over and going up and down <clears throat> but it was a real sense of community and people would be like, it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for this person and these people helped me hugely and I got to this place and this. So I think the, the extent of community and collaboration was quite striking to me over an office job in accounting, for example. Mm. Does, how does that play into this conversation of resilience and self-care? There's a real dark side to that
0: though. And this is this is a whole uh, strand of of uh, substantial body of literature in, in public sector management on this for occupations which have these these, these strong professional identities and, and close-knit communities uh, which are characterized um, broadly by being on the one hand, stressful and difficult in the sense of not controlling outcomes, and on the other hand, not being terribly well understood by the wider world. And the obvious example is police or prison guards. You understand how that arises um, from the, you know, I've already adverted to, um, the sort of very contingent space that this kind of international public service, not public service in the sense of going to work for the government, but international public service, this very contingent space that has in the public imagination, right? It's always sort of in question and subject to political exigencies. There's always a perceived need to sort of justify its existence, um, secure the resources, secure the political backing, and there's this real tendency to circle the wagons to, you know, say explicitly or implicitly, "Well, um, you're an outsider, therefore." I'm going to protect the reputation of this broad sector of work and give you sort of the talking points, right, rather than the rather than the reality. And I say that's a dark side because you're doing that all the time and you cannot be having most of your conversations even with friends and family, let alone your professional conversations Consisting of, if not lies, then um, pumped up representations of the situation, right? You can't be giving people a story to preserve the sort of intangible reputation of the work when you know inside yourself um, that it's not like that, that the big picture results aren't there, that you yourself are struggling. Having those two things in your head at once is, I think, very difficult and very damaging. Um, and you see it even at the highest levels. You, you watch debates of the Security Council or you know, its equivalent decision-making bodies elsewhere or sort of cabinet-level decision-making in, in the Global North and it's an unreal discourse which is shaped by the need to preserve political support, shore up resources, protect that contingent position that the work always has. And that's so damaging for people who are doing the work, let alone the communities, of course, that they're working with, who don't see that reality acknowledged or reflected or shaping policy. Um, So I think one of the key changes that I would make if I had the, the hypothetical magic wand was the ability to have more honest, professional conversations about this, to be able to have truthful conversations about track record, about um, the difficulties that happen, about how these things actually play out that aren't perpetually being hammered by this need to circle the wagons and, and, and mm-hmm. you know protect the, the, the reputation in this very broad intangible tangible sense of, of what we're doing. So it, there is that sense of community, but I think it leads to this c- kind of toxic insider, outsider culture, which may do more harm than good. Um, you didn't actually ask me about the dark side of community. I just came up with that.
1: No, no, That's no. where
0: my mind naturally went.
1: <laughs> well, that's a whole other episode. Make of make
0: that what, what you will.
1: And I think that brings us nicely as a transition from the scary big numbers of 100,000 people killed, 1 million people killed, 200, 2 million, to people's lived experience and stories and that is what this podcast has been about, Mm -hmm. uh, bringing together anthropologists, educators, researchers, creatives, advocates, community organizers, human rights defenders, public health experts. This is a very leading question. Was this an attempt, and I think a successful attempt for you, to help bring this conversation to a broader space so people didn't think, coming back to your your formative experiences, hey, it's really weird that people don't react when these things are happening. Mm. What was the motivation behind telling these stories and sharing them much more broadly?
0: Uh, I think there are several answers to that. Um, The first is probably more individual in nature. Um, I don't expect that... Um, everybody would would share this view, Uh, certainly it's my view, is that there is is dignity in this work. Um, These are in and of themselves stories that are worth telling Mm -hmm. and they're not visible. Mm -hmm. They're not captured. 99% of the policy conversation in the broader aid sector, if we call it that, is talking heads. It's, it's senior officials, it's academics in elite institutions in the global north. To, to generalize a bit harshly, it is by and large people who have no lived experience of what they're talking about, or very little. Appointments are made on the basis of domestic political expediency. Expertise is judged by institutions in the global north that have no comparative advantage in talking about these issues. So I do think that the everyday experience of people who work at the point of delivery is really not present in mm-hmm. the conversation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's harmful in a structural way in terms of making good decisions. I also think it's, uh, it's not respectful of the, the dignity and the merit of the work in itself. I told a story in the short prologue I recorded mm-hmm. about a I mean, not not really a friend. I didn't know him that well, but a, a colleague in, in Congo who who died there. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away from his home, of a heart attack in like the crappy sort of windowless room that he was renting. Uh, and his obituary in his hometown couldn't even get right what he did. Uh, another super nice guy um, who. Died in a plane crash, um, actually within a few months of that. Uh, left behind wife and kids. You know, and he was an operations manager for a UN agency. Nothing, nothing sexy, but made the trains run on time, so to speak. And I always, he was um, very nice, and you one of these people you feel like you genuinely cared what was going on with you. Dies in a plane crash um, doing this operational job. And you know, they, they named their meeting room. After him, it was the Umar Memorial Meeting Room. It's like their crappy, rented, uh, repurposed house that they use as a satellite office for this agency. They just moved again a year or two later. That's no kind of that's no kind of uh, memorial or recognition of uh, people who really, you know, they do it for a range of reasons. He mm. made a living out of it. He supported his family. There's nothing, there's no dishonor in that but also he was working in tremendously difficult circumstances, he was nice to people, uh, and he believed in the work. Uh, I think these are stories that are worth capturing, um, and I you know, don't really need another <laughs> reason beyond that, if I'm, if I'm quite honest. Um, one of my, I guess I can say one of my heroes uh, is Svetlana Alexievich, who has a Nobel Prize for Literature now, but at the time she did most of her work obviously did not. Um, And she wrote these uh, sort of subaltern histories or or hidden histories of people who are not present Mm -hmm. in the dominant narrative uh, and that included um, survivors of Chernobyl, that included Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan, uh, but the book of hers that I started with was about the experience of women in the Eastern Front of the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War as they would say. And the prologue answers your question, actually, uh, and, she, and she says, yes, this is another book about war. I am fully aware that there have been a thousand wars and there have been many times that number of books about war, but these were men writing about men. Everything we know about war, we know with a man's voice. We are captives of men's ideas and men's sense of war. And I think that is true here as well. I mean, it's true even in the, the literal sense that I think our appreciation of these things is very gendered. But it is a our understanding of these things, our sense of these things, originates in a few capitals of countries in the global north in elite institutions. And that is profoundly disrespectful to all of the work all of the sweat and inspiration and effort and in some cases sacrifice that is done to work with the very most marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Those people's stories of course are also to a large extent untold, but I think my share of it, the part I know, is is what happens at that point of delivery. Mm-hmm. So that was this was it was probably the, the first motivation, to be honest. And then secondly, there there's there are a lot of structural problems in how we think and talk about and do this kind of work in extremely marginalized places. Because of differences in power and resources, uh, there are some profound dysfunctions here. And I think over the last year or 18 months, um, we have increasing an increasing acknowledgement of this um, through, I think movement is maybe too strong a word, but you have sort of tendencies in the discourse around decolonization of aid, It was a brief-lived hashtag charity so white uh, mini-movement. Uh, there was a brief hashtag aid2 movement, which acknowledged began to acknowledge the experiences of somewhat marginalized perspectives. Um, people of color in a white-dominated industry. The fact that expertise ostensibly sits in the global north in the places with the least experience of the subject matter. The fact that decision making is predominantly geared towards domestic political constituencies in the global north. So I think at this point hopefully it's not controversial to observe that that structural dysfunction exists and it has a lot of very negative consequences. Um, Absence of professional honesty in terms of the actual track record of the work, Uh, work that is overtly performative, is just done to be seen, to be doing something, you know, that is is virtue signaling before that term became um, sort of wildly applied to to everything on the internet. And we we need collective answers to those structural problems, right? Obviously, a lot of that is about incentives. It's about... Uh, organizational design, it's about resource governance, where the money comes from, where it goes. But I think we're making a category mistake if it's only that, if you're only talking about these kind of hardware and software questions of processes and organizational design and and, and accounting and so on, and even decision-making. I think any genuine transition that challenges those structural inequities directly challenges our values, our beliefs, our attitudes, and any genuine transition will accordingly uh, challenge people's personal identities. It is asking them, perhaps directing them, to leave behind something that has really governed their whole worldview for for decades in many cases. And that's enormously painful. That is adaptive challenge of not just changing the the superstructure but the the motivations and the beliefs and the ideas that undergird that will be enormously painful for a lot of people who by and large I do believe act from good intentions, unquestionably have spent decades of their lives in many cases and, and paid very high prices in many cases. So how do we manage that you know, emotional values, even spiritual transition. And I I think for that, we need new stories. We need stories that are more inclusive, of who we are, quote unquote, of who gets to speak, that don't marginalize or exceptionalize things like South-South cooperation or localization of humanitarian response, but recognize that we are fundamentally engaged in the same enterprise and that these perspectives should be given equal or greater weight as to how we engage in this enterprise. Um, And stories, moreover, that um, are more honest and and permit a real conversation about the gap between what we say we will do and what actually happens, and that don't immediately formulate this protective posture whenever uh, anything about the enterprise is questioned. So ultimately stories that are, are resources and tools for us to answer those questions and for people entering for people who, who are motivated by public value who want to who are motivated by these huge historical events and injustices and want to get involved that they're given the tools <laughs> to to grapple with that in a meaningful way and don't have to navigate it on their own for 15 or 20 years and maybe never mm-hmm. find answers so long a long way of saying that I, th- I think there is a, a a need in the sector for new narratives that are true to the lived experience of doing the work Mm -hmm. and aren't about the politics and um, practical needs of justifying and resourcing the work. And I think at the moment we have the latter, we really need the former. This is a modest contribution, but you have to start.
1: Absolutely, and I, I would challenge that a little of rather than new narratives, I think newly heard narratives. Because those narratives are existing, mm. they just don't yet have a platform and a voice in which to be heard.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, indeed. And that is a, I'm very acutely conscious that that is a potentially limitless mm-hmm. category. Because the narratives that are heard, that are on Center stage uh, is a very narrow group.
1: Did you pay attention to particular parts or particular stories that you felt hadn't been told before?
0: Yes, um, is the is the short answer. I think the main dimensions that I was conscious of there are one most obviously. Majority from global south. That was mm-hmm. rule from day one, and I wanted clear majority of women. I ended up with pretty close to 50-50 because it is clearly a northern male um, perspective that we get in the majority of the time. Uh, it's the northern male upper class white perspective that we get the majority of the time. If I'm if I'm honest, so those were sort of those were non-negotiable guide rails, mm-hmm. um, which with a starting point for curation. And then beyond that, it's it's always going to be a little bit uh, a product of circumstance, who you have access to, who is able to speak, you know, in an organizational sense, who has freedom to speak and feels comfortable doing so and so on. So I don't know that it would have been useful to map it out in terms of the exact boxes that mm-hmm. I wanted to fill. I think the common thread is really long-career, Public service broadly defined at or near the point of delivery, and then leaving it open ended. What emerges from that? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a school of thought that it would have been better to organize around particular themes and, and have takeaways and lessons and so on. So, you could probably guess from my turn. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of that because I think the second you succumb to that, you're falling back into the same trap of, I want a clearly formulated, precise answer on this. Therefore, I will go to someone whose job it is to provide clearly formulated, precise answers on this particular job. And that means you find yourself in an elite institution in the global north someone who has the luxury of publishing and researching and thinking all day about how to provide those answers. One of my favorite... um, books, which is is wildly sort of off-piste for the issues we're discussing, is is Keegan's Face of Battle, um, which is a very famous military history of specific battles over the span of several centuries. And I mention it because his setup, his prologue, is exactly about this. Um, And his comment is that you can't tell a history of an everyday soldier's experience in that way. They're not working in a stable environment where the variables are abstracted into a two-dimensional map. They're working in a wildly unstable physical and emotional environment where all that is mixed together. And I think to capture those stories, you have to be a little bit true to that and do it in a narrative way. Mm -hmm. You have to do it in plain language that follows... The structure of the way people experience things. I think that basic stylistic decision is what opens it up to involvement of people who are normally unheard and there are only a few cases where any of the people on, on the podcast had published um, a few academics and had but by and large the people who don't interview don't publish and that is absolutely by design. I guess the other point I would make here is that I have an idea in my mind that there is a ethic of public service that unifies these kinds of work. Uh, and talking to people, when you list them out like that, I, th- I think, yes, those are quite varied backgrounds. What is striking to me, looking back at them, is not the variation, it's the consistency. Absolutely. It is the articulation of the same motivations, mm-hmm. fears, anxieties, hopes, achievements, uh, very clear through lines through nearly all of this. There are a few outliers of course where people just have a slightly funky way of looking on the world but obviously that makes it interesting. So my, my contention really is and I, I struggle even with the vocabulary for this. I say things like international cooperation or international public service because the boxes we put ourselves in separate uh, more than they need to, in my view. Um, when, whether I was talking to a humanitarian, development professional, public health person, human rights researcher, I think there is vastly more in common on what matters in terms of worldview and orientation and values than there is that divides. And that, to me, is, is one of the big impressions that this has
1: left me with, actually. I agree wholeheartedly. I think it was Catherine who said, "You need to have a screensaver of like what keeps you going when things get really, really tough," and there is that sense of a common contribution and good that comes through all of these different stories.
0: Yes, and I, I didn't love the metaphor screensaver. It struck me as a bit sort of uh, early nineteen nineties, but her Her comment was that you have to have a uh, a true mental image of the thing itself that you can fall back on, mm-hmm. which is one through uh, direct experience and interaction, when I mean I'm not here to talk about my consulting work, but when I'm looking at a policy framework when i'm I'm entering a conversation uh, on a question of organizational design, in the back of your mind, you do have to have a set of real relationships with real people and real circumstances where you can test things and say, does this actually correspond to how they would see this and how things play out? And what I hope I've done to some extent is allow people to articulate um, you know, what their screensaver is, what their mental image is by which they look at these issues. And it is drastically different I will argue, to what you get in certainly the formal literature, certainly formal policy doc- documents, and I think you get something very distinctive and different from people who are at the point of delivery and have a, a feel for that, with obviously an extra weight on those who are actually from those places and of that context.
1: Let's talk a little about the making of the podcast. So podcasts are becoming more and more of a thing. Oh <laughs> As I listen when I'm making a weekend meal and I've got one on the end, uh, on in the background, what I'm so struck with at the end is like a two to three minute summary of the executive producer for this podcast was this person, the sound recording person was this, the onsite man. I was like, how many people do you need to make a podcast? And it's remarkable that this is you. You are the editor, the producer, the guy who's booking the flights. And I just, I want to just hold a space for that this is a remarkable accomplishment. To hold space for people to articulate what is important and then to be able to share that and for it to be witnessed by people literally around the world.
0: Well, I don't know that it is. I would push back on that by saying that the very fact that that is possible should make you ask, why doesn't this happen more commonly? Um, and p- above all, in, I think in any area of public service, but if we stick with the broader development, human rights, etc. sectors for the moment, why are the voices of people next to the problems, whether they be people affected by them who may or may not have freedom to speak or people who are working at the point of delivery, not more visible. Mm -hmm. Why do we get these sort of six-line vignettes with a picture of someone captioned as, you know, Jane the villager in, in northern Uganda when it it is not that difficult to hold a space for people to speak for themselves. I'm, I'm quite struck that the majority of competitors is not the right word, but the, it is a growing space. There aren't when I started, there weren't, but now there are, you know, at least a few dozen podcasts on, on human rights and, and the development space. They're all academics. They're all senior policy officer, this, junior vice president, that, at such and such institution. It's not that hard to go and get first-person experience of actually doing the work. So I... It's not that I think I deserve any praise for doing it so much. I view it as a bit of a challenge. Why can't you stop speaking for people and give them a platform to speak for themselves?
1: And I'd like to explore a little further on your principles of production. There are 38 hours of published content. Mm. And I would hazard a guess something like 60 to 70 hours of conversation. And I know... um, being a fly on the wall during your editing sometimes there's chickens in the background and Sure. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes people have got their mobile phone going and, and blipping and, and i think you guided maybe global north listeners through this you you were very conscious and aware of it and saying you know hold on guys this will the, the beeps will stop um I think it added something to it that we're not in a BBC soundstage studio with complete quiet, mm. and you are, like, you are in people's homes around their kitchen table or in their study where they think and, and they have time to reflect or in a community hall in some of the places you went. This is lived experience from the, from the source. Mm-hmm. What were your principles in how you edited the content for what got left out mm. and what was kept in?
0: It's a good question, and I guess that was emergent rather than planned out. The main points would be, first, providing the, the lay of the land. Um, I'm very conscious that we're divided, everyone is divided into their little subsectors of specialty, and jargon and... You know, even uh, geography can be a barrier to understanding. So it is important to have a, a bit of a map at the start to allow people to position where this conversation is taking place. The second is natural language. Encouraging people to speak uninterrupted as they, in the way that they formulate issues and talking honestly as little as possible. Um, the ones I have measured, I'm talking less than 5% of the time. And the reason for that, I've already articulated, is, is, is not to overlay my interpretive framework and their expectations on what people want to say. Um, you need to create uh, a light structure, but anything beyond that, I think you're doing people a disservice. A third, I on the, ch- the Notorious Chickens, this was a particular one that required really a lot of work. The technical audio recording quality was just awful. Um, And I'm not a sound engineer by any stretch. um, And I think you're probably being generous in terms of how uh, many people would perceive the production quality relative to more highly polished things. I think my contention is that it just needs to be good enough from a technical standpoint. We listen to and understand stories in all sorts of ways. We overhear them in a cafe, we get them from graffiti on a wall, we listen to audiobooks while we're doing completely different tasks. I think the human brain is good at narrative mm-hmm. and it, problems of that nature have to be pretty distracting to actually substantively affect the, your ability to engage with the narrative. Um, so I have tried to be as light touch as possible. I, I do find the highly produced nature of most modern cut co- podcasts to be distracting. I would much rather present a narrative as someone's story rather than taking ownership for a balanced and complete account of a particular episode in history. Um, it's a much easier task and I it's also one that aligns better with my with my values, to be honest. Picking up on the
1: values, one element that is really important is absolutely not speaking for people, not changing up what they're saying. And what is impressive is your full consent process. So what happens behind the scenes that listeners won't know is that you type up a transcript for people. You give full permission and consent to review everything people said. Mm. And I think that is different to many podcasts, many television shows that you turn up, you do your recording... Okay, now that's mine and what I do with it is up to me. Mm. But you are very involved and it is a fully consensual process and mm. that is different.
0: Well, I hope it's not too different. Um, I mean, I, I can't speak for, for others, of course, but people are trusting you with something that is profoundly personal and central to their identity. So everything I just said is in service of that. Um, I clean up the audio quality in a technical sense as best I can as a, I, as a Luddite. I, I clean up the speech where necessary if they're not 100,000% um, fluent and, and comfortable in English in order to uh, you know be true to what they want to say and respect what they want to say and, and make that that the focus and not some other distracting thing. Part of that is that they, of course, they're all practitioners. They have real work and real jobs and and real lives. And as I said, there is a defensive reflex in the sector. So uh, part of that is taking out stuff that's uh, gonna cause them problems. Um, And obviously there's a hidden narrative beneath these hidden narratives. Uh, that will not be captured because my job here is not to do muckraking, it is to uh, platform stories that have not previously been heard
1: Absolutely and in your prologue, to to draw us to a close now um, you shared the story about Gromo and what your intention to do with this podcast is to think what would I talk to Gromo about over lunch Mm. and I think this is what you've been able to achieve. And I think an extraordinary opportunity for people who would never get to go to the Kenyan community hall, who would never get to be in someone's office to have that frank and real and often joyous, humorous conversation of somebody's experience. You are giving people the opportunity to hear and to listen and to engage in conversation that would be likely to unhappen, happen otherwise?
0: I hope so. Um, I hope so. One of the ironies of this kind of work, which occurred to me when you said there was a tight-knit community, is that these conversations don't happen that often. Either we're furthering that... Uh, quote-unquote discourse that I mentioned earlier where we're talking about the work in a way that will gin up support politically and with financial stakeholders and with political stakeholders or you're having these incredibly nasty backroom bitching sessions about partners and colleagues and whoever else. I think There isn't really a third space for these kind of conversations. They don't happen that often. Um, And I will immodestly say that several people have mentioned to me that this is literally the first time anyone has asked them these questions in a 30 or 40-year career, Mm -hmm. which, when you think about it, is profoundly unhealthy that you can work on an issue like gross human rights violations for 40 years and never have someone take the time to ask you so... How are you coping with the emotional toll of this? What have you learned about um, how to manage yourself better? What would you like to change going forward in terms of the the balance between your personal and professional life? These sorts of questions. Um, I'm glad that I can have those sort of conversations with people. Those are the kinds of conversations that interest me. At the same time, it's, it's a bit of an indictment of... Um, these sectors of work that that can be the case in my view this should be an everyday thing we need collective answers on these incredibly tough challenges that we face day to day not fumbling our way through individually in the dark and the other comment I would make here is that and this comes back to the editing and production point um, I don't know what people well, different people will take from this. My circumstances are not the same as a kid going into university in uh, Dakar, let's say, who maybe wants to work for the African Union or, uh, a, you know, a, a mid-career person in Peru who is, is thinking about engaging constructively with issues of uh, environmental damage or, you know, whatever it is. And I probably can't speak to their interests and their experiences, but I feel like in the selection of voices we've got, they can find something that speaks to them. Mm-hmm. That Those richer, thicker narratives, where people come from, why they're motivated, what they do, where they want to go from here. I think there's really grist in there for anyone who is motivated by public service to uh, find you know, some, hopefully some inspiration, so also even just some practical ideas, or just be heard and, and, and a little bit seen and understand how their situation connects with other people's situations. Uh, if I can do that for a handful of people, then, you know, mission accomplished, right?
1: Ian, thank you. It has been a joy of a conversation, and I'm glad that people have been able to understand a bit more about your history and values and beliefs. Is there anything that's come up for you in the course of this conversation that you'd like to end on today?
0: Um, I was somewhat resistant to doing uh, an interview of my own, as you know. I think the... deciding factor was that uh, I do want to encourage people, colleagues, friends, some enemies uh, passions can run high and this, this works sometimes, to have more of these sorts of conversations. If we jump to technical and structural solutions to the problems that we face in reorganizing this sector, We are missing something really important. Um, We are missing the most critical resource that's there, which is people's uh, energy, their spirit, their dedication, um, their, you know, in some cases, I'll say it, their sacrifice. I'm not talking about myself, about others. And unless you factor that into the conversation, unless you allow people to... Process that identify what they take forward with them and what they leave behind. That conversation about deep structural change will get stuck, and people will people will continue to, uh, you know, be isolated and, and dealing with these very difficult challenges of inequity and racism and and mental and physical trauma and so on on their own, and that's unnecessary and it's cruel. So. We can do, we can do this collectively. It doesn't require uh, a big institution behind you. It doesn't require uh, a perm- permission or a mandate from somebody. We can have more open conversations about the bigger questions in in, in public service, and uh, you know, see where it takes us. You, you have to open up the space and, and have more voices heard before you know what the way forward is going to be. And I think that hasn't really happened yet and it needs to happen. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.